I told my wife, because she's like, listen, there's a roadblock. There's something going on with you. I, I know it. And so when I saw his email, the light bulb just came on. I said, this is what I need to do. And at least try to get past this roadblock. And that's what happened. I saw his email. I signed up. And the rest is history. I could never complete a project. And I've completed a project faster than I thought. And I didn't throw in the towel. We talked about this today when I was talking with, with Eric. You know, I, I want to keep giving up. And he's like, don't walk away from what you've already created. If you want to help getting past your roadblocks like Andy and hundreds of other clients have, go to oneufeed.net slash transform. We are finite creatures. We have a certain amount of lifespan, certain amount of energy, certain amount of attention in any moment. And that means by definition that you can only do so many things. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Hey, I've got some really exciting news. You can now listen to our entire back catalog completely ad-free, exclusively on Stitcher Premium. You can listen to literally every single of the 200 and I don't know how many, 50, 60 episodes we've ever done, as well as many episodes on Stitcher Premium, completely ad-free. You can also listen to every new episode ad-free, as well as tons of other ad-free Wondery shows. Plus, with Stitcher Premium, you'll get access to hundreds of hours of original content, audio documentaries, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of your other favorite podcasts. You can sign up now for a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcherpremium.com Wondery and using the promo code Wondery. Then once you're signed up, just download the Stitcher app for iOS or Android and start listening. That's stitcherpremium.com slash Wondery and use the promo code Wondery. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Oliver Berkman. Oliver is a writer for The Guardian. His book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, explores the upsides of negativity, uncertainty, failure, and imperfection, which we discussed in our first interview with Oliver. Each week in This Column Will Change Your Life, Oliver writes about social psychology, self-help culture, productivity, and the science of happiness. He's won the Foreign Press Association's Young Journalist of the Year Award, FPA's Science Story of the Year, and has been shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. Here's the interview. Hi, Oliver. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for asking me. It is a pleasure to have you back on. You were one of our very first guests, and I was, uh, I was touched that you were willing to get on a podcast that was so completely unknown and brand new at that point, and that was a favor that I have not forgotten. So thank you, and I'm glad to have you back. 
Oh, it's good to be here. I, uh, I I don't know what it was, but evidently it was. Uh, I was. I guessed correctly that it would uh, turn into something. So. <laughs> Somewhat, yes. Well, let's start like we always do with a parable. There's a grandfather who's talking to his grandson. He says, "In life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love, and the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear." And the grandson stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at his grandfather. He says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. It's funny because I assume you must have asked me a similar question last time. And I am trying to figure out if I have had some sort of transformation since then in, uh, in what these kind of things mean, because quite a lot has happened in my life uh, since then. I mean, the thing that it draws attention to for me is the question of what it means to feed either of those wolves. I think that a lot of my understanding of personal psychology and all the rest of it has been a move away from assuming that feeding the good wolf means focusing relentlessly with your conscious will on on trying to be happy and be productive and uh, and uh, eliminate and, and, and sort of not feeding the bad wolf means trying to pretend that it doesn't exist and, and stamp it out and eliminate it you know and I think of course you know there's a lot of wisdom in that in that story but, but what I appreciate about it is it doesn't say like it's the one that you kind of grab hold of. And uh, I don't know how the metaphor would continue, but you know what I mean? It's like actually feeding the good stuff in life doesn't always mean trying to eliminate all the bad stuff. It doesn't always mean kind of fixating on trying to feel as good as you can and things like this. It's something much more to do with a sort of slow process of nourishing things in the right direction. There you go. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, no, no starving of the bad wolf, no, uh, no locking him in a cage and beating him. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I've always been interested in you when I read the title of your book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. You know, I immediately had to have you on the show because I think we share a lot of insight. And you you tend to take a, I don't think it's an intentional, but but certainly a, a, a little bit more of a contrarian approach to things that in the personal development space might just be common knowledge that everybody's like, yes, this is really important. And you tend to put a little spin on it, which I always appreciate. And the thing that you have spent some time thinking about lately and and writing about, and I'd like to start off with, is really this whole idea of time management and, and how we really believe so much that if we could just manage our time, everything would be great. And there are huge industries built around this very idea. And I'd like to kind of get your take on the modern time management world. Sure, yeah, no, this is very much where my, my head has been at. Um, I think that there's sort of two ways into this. One is the, the daily experiential level, and then I'll do that first, and then if we can, I'll move to my sort of uh, my big philosophy of this. But I think that, you know, we all have this experience, those of us who are into this kind of productivity stuff and time management techniques. And I speak as someone who uh, has grown disillusioned with a lot of that space, but not through inexperience, you know, through through very much wanting it to work out. I think a lot of us have this experience that that 
even when you succeed in getting a lot better at uh, organizing your time, at uh, producing, getting through more tasks, you don't actually feel less busy. Uh, you don't feel less time pressured in, a, in an unpleasant way. And you actually you know, seem to get, get a lot more stuff coming in onto your plate, but not necessarily in a good way, not always stuff you want to do. So, you, so overwhelm doesn't seem to be solved, I suppose is what I'm saying, by getting more and more efficient at processing work. And I think this is a specific example of a general position that we all understand in the modern world, which is that technologies of efficiency don't seem to bring peace of mind like you might expect, you know, by any sane logic, uh, a world that has uh, jet engines and microwaves and uh, the internet, you know, it should feel much more restful, I think, because, you know, of all those hours that are being saved, that previously things took a long time and now they take a lot less time. But of course, what really happens is somehow this just causes us to all feel more rushed. And I think that that's what tends to happen for a lot of people in, in time management. It's like you're constantly, it's this kind of Sisyphean struggle. You're, you're always just about to get to, you know, the state of mind like water or whatever it is, uh, of total, total peace of mind on top of everything, easily able to deal with everything that comes in, to focus on your most important goals, but also to deal with all the admin that life throws up. But you're always just about to get there rather than ever getting there. And so even when you do get much more productive, I don't think it has the psychological benefits that people were hoping for. And I have some theories just about as to why. Yeah, I definitely, you know, find that to be true as somebody who has spent a fair amount of time looking at productivity and trying to be more effective, more efficient, all those things. Like there is no more time that comes of it. And, you know, I, I have to, I'm always fighting this sort of internal battle where I have to say to myself, your to-do list is never going to go away. And if it did, there would be a real problem, right? Right. Like, that would right. be a bad thing. You joke in your article, you know, or, or, or sort of joke, sort of not about this whole idea of inbox zero, right? Like how we think that's so important. And I have to remind myself, like e having a bunch of email in my inbox is not a bad thing. Having a bunch of things on my to-do list is not a bad thing. They become bad when I allow that to overstress me. Yes. I, and I think, you know, there's a very deep insight there, which is that um, this idea that one day you're going to get to a point where there are no more emails coming in and where there's nothing on your list that you want to do. On the one hand, that's often how we approach these things, right? We feel constantly sort of harassed by the, by the number of items on the list and we sort of uh, seek to crank our way through them to get to a point in some sort of fantasy space where they don't exist. But if you got there, that would be, as you say, terrible. I mean, that would mean that there was nothing going on in your life anymore. That's not what anybody wants. So, so it is a bit of a paradox that we've got ourselves into this mode of uh, trying to crank through everything when actually if we managed to crank through everything, we might be a bit dismayed. <laughs> yeah, you say that, you know, time management whispers of the possibility of true peace of mind. Yeah, I think a lot of this has to be seen in a wider social, political, economic context, that we live in times when fewer and fewer of us, as everyone knows, have, uh, you know, jobs for life and uh, trustworthy implicit contracts between big corporations and the employee that you would be there for 
your whole career and then very well looked after when you are at a pensionable age and your family looked after and all the rest of it. That's all being replaced with the, the gig economy. Uh, and in all sorts of other ways, people, I think, feel more and more precarious, whether or not they're actually on low incomes. Even people who are relatively privileged in financial terms, I think, feel more precarious in terms of this, the idea that, you know, it doesn't seem guaranteed that it's going to keep going that way. And it's the experience of lots of us who are fortunate not to be poor to still feel like, you know, everything's all a bit tight all the time in terms of making everything, making ends meet because of, it's just the way the world works, even if, even if the life you're living is a, is a good one. I think what that kind of climate gives rise to is this idea that more and more and more it's on you to try to <clears throat> deal with everything, to try to um, uh, meet the challenge of this situation by transforming yourself into a sort of completely efficient machine who can do more and more and more work to and make more and more money to counteract the fact that everything seems more and more precarious. And I even think things that are not directly economic, like, you know, uh, worries about the climate and the sense of extreme volatility on the political scene and all the rest of it, it all plays into this kind of idea that you can't really trust anyone apart from making yourself into a kind of uh, omnipotent master of your own life. So the pressure feels kind of is ramped up in that respect. Now, I don't think that it works, but I, that's, you know, there's a lot of reason why people uh, why all of us feel that pressure. Right. It definitely is. And as as you were talking, I was thinking for a minute, I was trying to think back. The image that flashed into my mind was, you know, we all talk about a simpler time. You know, I hear this often, like, you know, it was a simpler time back then. You know, 19, you know, n- you know, 1970. Let's just take that as the decade I grew up and, you know, people look back and that was a, a simpler time. And, and I sometimes try and think, like, what was different? What didn't my parents do with us kids that, you know, today's modern world insists on? Like, I'm try- and, and I, I'm asking this and sort of a, it just occurred to me, like, what, what are the real differences in what we actually did then versus now that made time seem less frantic then? Although I imagine if you'd asked my parents in the 70s, they would have said they were busy too. Right. And I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, there's a couple of things here. One that you've just reminded me of is, you know, people generally always think that the time when they were kind of 10 years old was a simpler time, but that was because you were 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, you can actually see this in kind of, someone has written this, I can't remember who I should be crediting here, but, you know, if you look at sitcoms, that are set in the past at any point in history. They're always set about kind of 40, 30, 40 years ago when they do these kind of things like that 70s sitcom they did and all these different ones. They're often set at the time when, uh, you know, people who are just becoming big deals in the comedy screenwriting world are, you know, hitting their 40s and sort of beginning the people who dominate the industry and they're just writing about the time when they were... uh, uh, when times were simpler because they were actually kids and most of their world was was uh, simpler as a result of that. I think, however, that things have changed also uh, historically in, in various ways. And I don't think it is that we're necessarily doing more. Whenever surveys are done about time use, you find these very strange results like that, um, you know, the average American parent today of small children spends much more time with them, especially fathers, than uh, a few decades ago. Um, 
there's some evidence that housework is less of a chore uh, today, in certainly in some countries, than it was several decades ago. And yet, of course, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like everything's gone in the opposite direction. And I think part of what that uh, speaks to is that this is a psychological phenomenon that is determined partly by the standards of what we think we ought to be managing to do, rather than the amount of stuff we sort of actually find ourselves having to do. Email is an extraordinary example. I mean, obviously, you know, 10-year-old kids don't, hopefully don't have email at any era in history, but, but um, <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of infinite, right? I mean, if, if there is no limit to, uh, this is an example that I think I used in, uh, in that piece, and I'm using a bit in the book that I'm trying to write at the moment. The input side of email is basically infinite. Anybody on the planet can send you an email. Uh, if your boss sends you lots of ideas for things he or she would like you to be working on, there's kind of no limit to how many can be sent. Uh, if you're dealing with customers, there's kind of no limit to how many complaints or queries they can make of you. Um, if you're a journalist, uh, I can promise you there's no limit to the number of uh, public relations people who can send you press releases that they want you to <laughs> that they want you to cover. And yet, of course, uh, an individual human's capacity for doing work hasn't changed. That's still, you know, there's still 24 hours in a day and some of those you've got to sleep and some of those you have a, a life outside work and you only have so much energy. So uh, you have this finite capacity and now this kind of, in many ways, I think, massively increasing input side that has no real breaks to it. So firstly, it's going to feel like there's a much greater imbalance than there was. You're going to feel more overwhelmed than previously uh, because of all the incoming stuff. And then secondly, even if you get really efficient at processing it, it's going to be a little bit like climbing up an infinitely long ladder, right? You're going to get faster and you're going to make a better pace up the infinitely long ladder and you're going to feel more rushed and more tired, but you're never going to get to the top because it's an infinitely long ladder. So um, efficiency in that regard is actually kind of self-defeating. One analogy that I think makes sense of it, a lot of it to a lot of people is we all kind of know, I think, from lots of different failed experiments that when they add a lane to the freeway to try to ease congestion, it's well known that in lots of contexts what happens is it just entices more people to use the freeway. So it, it attracts more cars and then congestion remains at the same level that it was. And I think that's sort of what's happening with a lot of productivity stuff is you get better and better and better at answering emails, but then every email you answer generates a reply or half of them do. <laughs> right. People start sending you more stuff because you're a quick responder to email and, um, you know, nothing's changed. I have a new Daily Harvest favorite smoothie. I think I've mentioned mint cacao in the past, which is outrageously good. However, now ginger greens has taken over. It's, it's a bunch of different greens with ginger, and it is delicious and refreshing and so very healthy. As I've said, I love Daily Harvest because they deliver carefully sourced chef-crafted smoothies, savory bowls, overnight oats, and more built on fruits and vegetables, and everything stays fresh in your freezer until you're ready to eat it. You can choose from more than 50 nourishing options for any time of the day. 
And each single serving cup takes one step to prepare. Just add water or milk to a smoothie or heat up a harvest bowl. All the ingredients are carefully sourced for maximum nourishment and flavor. Daily Harvest is the easiest, most delicious way to load up on fruits and vegetables first thing in the morning, before bed, and any time in between. Go to daily-harvest.com and enter promo code FEED to get three cups free in your first box. That's promo code FEED for three free Daily Harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. Daily-harvest.com. Life can be stressful. Between work, family, and everything in between, it's not always easy to find time for yourself. And we all need someone to talk to. A person who can support us through rough patches or even the everyday ups and downs of life. And that's where Talkspace comes in. Talkspace is therapy for how we live today. It's mobile, it's available when you need it, and it's affordable. Talkspace Online Therapy makes taking care of your mental health more affordable and convenient than ever before. Simply provide your preferences for therapy and Talkspace will match those with one of 3,000 plus therapists the very same day. You can send your therapist unlimited text, audio, picture, and video messages from anywhere at any time and you'll hear back daily five days a week. All you need is a computer with an internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app. It's also really affordable. One month of therapy on the Talkspace platform costs about the same amount as a single face-to-face session. Best of all, you'll never have to wait a week to share what's on your mind. Talkspace has more than 3,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges we all face. To match with your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code WOLF to get $45 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com and use the code WOLF. You point out that there's a deeper thing going on here with productivity, you know, this focus on productivity, this focus on getting more done. And you say it also functions as a form of psychological avoidance. The more you can convince yourself that you need never make difficult choices because there will be enough time for everything, the less you will feel obliged to ask yourself whether the life you are choosing is the right one. I just drove us right into heavy water, into deep water there. (laughs) No, well, I think this is the underlying thing. I mean, even deeper than the stuff about the social and economic climate and everything is this basic thing that we are finite creatures. We have a certain amount of lifespan, certain amount of energy, certain amount of attention in any moment. And that means by definition that you can only do so many things. And yet at the same time, we're capable of imagining, you know, you can you can have a thousand projects you'd like to launch. You can have a thousand things that people in your life are trying to make you feel obliged to do. Uh, you can have a thousand pressures whether in coming from inside you or, or from outside you. But the finitude of, of yourself means that you are going to be making choices and there are going to be trade-offs and you're going to have to not do most of the things you, you could do in order to do a few of them. So there's this big challenge of being finite uh, beings who are capable of imagining infinite achievements uh, or feeling infinite obligations and social pressures. And the great thing in a short-term very misleading way about productivity 
techniques is they make you feel like maybe you don't have to face that because maybe you can just find a way to do 10 things in an hour instead of five things. And maybe you can find a way to, uh, you know, achieve all the goals that you were, that you were thinking of, of, of achieving. And so it's a sort of short term psychological relief. What actually then happens is you end up diluting your time and attention among too many things. And actually, there's also another effect, which is a little bit mysterious, although I have some theories. It actually seems like you end up doing more and more, of spending more and more of your life on the trivial stuff, the more efficient you get. It's like there's a very strong impetus to clear the decks and to, uh, you know, cross off all the little items before you go around to the big one. And, and, and I speak from many years of you know, being a productivity geek. It seems like you get really, really good at doing the the things that don't really matter and not a lot better or perhaps even worse at getting around to the things that count. Yeah, I mean, you said so much there. I think that's definitely true that it's a lot easier to do things like answer emails that don't really matter that much, create yet another to-do list, um, you know, check this thing off, you know, organize this, organize that. That's all infinitely easier than really doing sometimes the work the work that we know is important that is in front of us. Um, and I'm a fan, I mean, I'm a believer in, in, you know, to-do lists and all that stuff, like being, being organized, but there's definitely, you know, I, I can see it in myself. There are days where I'd rather just deal with all the administrative trivia of what we're doing here, because that's just easier than maybe sitting down and working on something that's more meaningful and, and harder to do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it, if I can name names in a way that is not actually entirely critical here, because I owe him so much, I think many of your listeners will be familiar with David Allen and a book Getting Things Done that was a huge bestseller when after it came out a couple of decades ago. And I have, you know, benefited enormously from all sorts of the insights in this productivity manual a lot of this stuff about you know getting everything out of your head and writing everything down and, and no longer feeling the the stress of trying to keep track of things uh, using your mind just absolutely you know changed my approach to work in a very positive way but he's one of several uh people in this space who advise what he having what he calls a someday maybe list where if you have a sort of ambitious thought for something you might like to do but you've no time to get around to it now you, you put it on this list where it just sort of sits out of sight and you don't need to worry about it and I have found in my own life that that kind of taking something that you clearly really care about but that seems a little too big to get your arms around right now and putting it somewhere where you don't think about it is exactly what I need to not do because that is strategy for you know the moment I feel a bit sort of scared about some potentially really exciting project to just sort of turn away from it for now and just focus on cranking out you know the stuff that's that's right in front of me and I think what we need is ways of finding you know what you actually need is some way of addressing of turning to the scary stuff now even if just a little in a little way uh, rather than having any sort of uh, avoidance technique that allows you to sort of, you know, think about postponing it uh, while you just do more of the uh, less important but easier stuff. That's an interesting take on that because I have a someday list, although I don't, I don't visit it very often. And I've gotten a lot out of his, his work. I mean, particularly that writing everything down and, but he's also the 
classic example, that getting thing done, getting things done system, you could essentially just implement the getting things done system 40 hours a week, every week, if you're not careful, right? Like just the very process of <laughs> implementing all the constraints is never ending, but some of the concepts are, are so important. But I think back to that core idea of, you know, I'm just going to read something else you wrote because I think it, it says it well. You know, you can seek to impose order on your inbox all you like, but eventually you'll need to confront the fact that the deluge of messages and the urge you feel to get them all dealt with aren't really about technology. They're manifestations of a larger, more personal dilemmas. Which paths will you pursue and which will you abandon? Which relationships will you prioritize during your shockingly limited lifespan? And who will you resign yourself to disappointing? What matters? And I think that is, you know, at the heart of what I think true good time management, like time management used in the right sense, is really thinking about what those things are and, and making some difficult decisions about what's important and then attempting to actually live by those decisions. I think that's exactly right. And I think one thing I'd like to emphasize is that I believe this message is not only true, but, but incredibly liberating and relaxing. Sometimes when I'm writing this stuff about like how we only have very short lives and we have to make tough decisions, I understand why people think I'm sort of trying to panic them into uh, uh, different, different behavior. But I think that understanding the fact, the indisputable fact that you won't be able to do all the things you can think of that might be worth doing it's just such a huge relief because you can give up that fight. That was not because you didn't have enough self-discipline or you didn't have enough energy or you hadn't found the right productivity technique. Like that is a logical impossibility. Uh, you are always going to have to not do most of the cool things that you might want to do in order to do and be present for and benefit from a small portion of the really cool uh things that you thought about doing. And I think it goes not only, it's quite easy to get into a vein of talking about like cool projects. People also have a lot of social pressures and obligations and, you know, they're asked to perform very well as parents and as employees and as community members and as citizens. And, you know, it is okay also to say like, you're going to have to make some choices in that mix. Maybe you are going to not have a very tidy house because you've decided you're going to read with your kid uh, when you could otherwise be keeping the house tidy, you know? And, and once you see that it was always impossible to be everything, I think it's a huge weight, or I experience it anyway, it's a huge weight off my mind because I come to see that I had been subconsciously telling myself I had to achieve something that uh, it's was never possible for any human being to achieve. Uh, and, you know, it's a bit like an example I use here and there is like nobody beats themselves up for not being able to jump a mile in the air because we never assume in the first place that, that any human being ought to have that capacity. But we do assume that uh, there must be some rule of nature, some law of nature that says that if you find the right way, you can answer all the emails that you get and do all your duties as parent, employee, friend, uh, son or daughter, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And once you realize that's impossible, it really frees up a lot of focus for making the most of your time. I don't think it's a counsel of defeat or despair at all. I think it's actually the, it's the prologue to really, really being present and accomplishing things in your life.
Right. I, I agree 100%. The example I think of often, particularly since we're doing this show, is what this show meant to me, right? Because I had to make a decision at a certain point. Like, if this was what I was going to do, there were other things that I was really interested in that I was not going to be able to do. And one of those, the most prominent for me was, I'm probably not going to be able to be in a band, right now, right? Like that's probably not workable given the amount of time that it will take to do this and do it well. So there are sacrifices in that. But for me, it, it's been so rewarding to actually do something and, you know, not, not to sound obnoxious, but to do it well and to care about it and really give it the love and attention that it needs versus spreading myself out over, you know, what I would typically do, which was like, well, I'm going to take a drawing class and I'm going to be in a band and I'm going to learn a new language and I'm going to, and, you know, and I would get about, you know, uh, you know, six inches down the road on about 20 different things. It's hard on one hand to, to, to go, yep, you know, I can't do all that. But it's also, like you said, it can be very liberating once we accept that, like, okay, that's the truth. That's what I've got to work with. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I always feel like I ought to stress that this is such a work in progress in my own life. I'm totally, constantly sort of prey to that, to that temptation. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think I get a little bit better at seeing that that's what's happening and then not feeling so bad about uh, letting certain things go, jettisoning uh, certain things. Uh, the, the point you make about playing in a band, you know, brings to mind this famous, this is related, you know, this, this very famous anecdote about of uh, productivity advice from Warren Buffett, I think, which is this idea that you should uh, list the 25 most important goals in your life in numerical order, focus on the top five, but then the next 20 should be your avoid at all costs list because <laughs> they are going to be the kind of things that are really alluring to you. They're going to be things that, that kind of have a big draw you weren't deciding whether to do this show or you know spend more of your life filing your taxes or uh you know um repairing things around the house you know things that you have to do but don't really want to do you were having to choose between things that had a draw so you are actually going to have to you know if you're going to live this philosophy you're going to have to not do things that it would be cool to do and it would be uh good to do and you could probably do well. This whole idea that, you know, a lot of the struggle of living an effective life is learning to say no. But I think it's Elizabeth Gilbert, the author somewhere points out that like, we tend to assume that that means saying no to all the things we don't want to do. Right. Uh, actually, it means saying no to a lot of those uh, and also no to a bunch of, to a bunch of good things. Yeah. And I think that you, that fact used to really bother me. I used to feel really torn by that, like that a choice to do one thing meant a it was a choice not to do a bunch of other things. And, and I, I don't know when for me, I just sort of dropped the resistance to the fact that like, that's what that meant versus sort of always hanging on to it. I think the other problem we have is that we look around and we see what appears to be other people doing all of the things that we think we should be doing. So we look at these people and we're like, but they're doing A, B, C, D, E, F, right? And we look at that and, and we judge ourselves against that. But we're almost always judging those things out of context and in a way that we, 
we're not seeing the whole story. I mean, the most obvious one, and this is, I'm probably going to get myself into, into trouble here, but the, the, the obvious one that shows up to me is somebody like Steve Jobs. Like, he, he, you know, he's put on a pedestal in so many ways, but he was clearly such an abysmal father, <laughs> right? Just, yeah, and, yeah. and so you've, you've got this like, well, what, which do you pick? We have this image of like people who can do everything. And I think that's combined with this other cultural thing that I see so often, um, which is that we feel like for anything to have meaning, it has to happen on this grand scale. And you combine those two things together, and it's really easy to feel like we have got to up our game or we're just failing. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's totally right. And then I think also there's yet another factor, which is the kind of primarily through social media, though not exclusively, this kind of one-to-many relationship that we have such that, you know, you may only have a small number of really good friends, but you are in communication with hundreds and hundreds of people. And what you see in their social media feeds uh, is is not all the days when they're slowly working on some project or even the days when they can't bring themselves to work on it and they're sort of wandering around the house feeling like losers. You see from them the highlights of it. So, you know, if, if uh, I, I realize probably I follow a disproportionate number of authors and journalists because that's what I am as well. But you know, every day my Twitter feed is full of people launching books or giving talks about their new book or um, finishing the manuscript and pouring themselves a cocktail or... Um, At the very least, the hashtag am writing. <laughs> exactly, right. And, you know, all those achievements are good and they're great, but but that's like a thousand people. <laughs> and I'm seeing each day one, another of the thousand uh, finish their book. And of course, that's, that's how it works. What I'm not taking account of psychologically is that, um, you know, many of those people I will not hear from for months and months and months at a time because they are just doing the, the slow work. You see one person publishing a book and one person giving a talk and another person launching a, a course, whatever, you know, and you think like, oh, I should be doing all of those things, but it's actually a thousand people who are doing them all. So it's not, um, it's not really uh, uh, quite the same uh, thing at all. There's so much talk about the dangers that social media can have to our perception of the world. And yet, you know, they're so true. I mean, there are so many, and I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm not against any of it, but if we're not careful to sort of filter what we're seeing through a lens of reality, it can be incredibly discouraging. Right, right. Because it is an environment curated, even at its best, it's an environment curated to bring you lots of exciting and interesting things that in a, to a degree that is unrepresentative of how interesting or exciting any one individual person's life is from moment to moment, and then at its worst, it's designed to bring you things that outrage you and terrify you, and uh, you know, and, and make you think like everybody else in the world is not only a higher achiever but is also absolutely terrible person. So you know, either way, it, it's uh, it's not like walking through the concrete world uh, where you know you see people in, at every different point in their life and doing all sorts of things. It's just the sort of it's the highlights real or the lowlights real.
Pursuing our love of learning is an important step in creating a life worth living, and that is what The Great Courses Plus is all about. With this fantastic streaming service, you can learn about anything that interests you from award-winning experts. And they've got a course that I really enjoy called iRest, Integrative Restoration Yoga Nidra for Deep Relaxation. iRest is a research-based form of deep meditation, that allows us to hold on to a sense of peace in this ever-changing world. Expert Molly Burkholm guides us through the meditations in this 10-step practice while exploring the science behind it, and it has been scientifically proven to improve sleep, pain relief, stress management, and even healing from trauma. This is a great course to get started with from The Great Courses Plus, or you can enjoy any of their thousands of lectures with unlimited access to explore any topic, human behavior, history, science, hobbies like coaching, photography, and drawing. And you can watch or listen from anywhere with The Great Courses Plus app. And now they are offering a special limited time offer for our listeners. You can get a full month, that's 30 days of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus for free. But in order to get that, you have to use this special URL. So feed your good wolf by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash wolf. Plus is all spelled out. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash wolf. Anything else on this topic you want to head into and talk about? I mean, the, the book is sort of pretty wide ranging on this topic of time and our own finitude and this idea that it's kind of our attempts to deny that, that, uh, that get us into all these all these scrapes. So I obviously could talk about it for a very long time. I think we've probably covered the main things. I think um, another aspect that I'm keen to emphasize, I just mentioned briefly, is, you know, we talk a lot about distraction and digital distraction, especially, and this idea that there is a sort of whole world out there now that is set up to try to monetize distracting us uh, from what we wanted to do. And I think that's true. And I explore some of the ways in that in my book about that you can deal with that. But I think there's another aspect as well that we don't look at as much, this internal desire to be distracted. So that we talk a lot as if the way I talk about being distracted by Twitter or something, it might be that I was sitting there working on my book and then like the Twitter pinged up on my desktop and made a, made a noise and I, and I went to look at it and it was kind of, you know, it was kind of a purely external force drawing me away from my focus. And that's a real thing. That is a huge industry designed to try to disrupt my focus. And I think it's an extremely serious uh, sort of societal issue at the moment. But actually, it's not exactly how it went down, right? What actually happened was I was working on a paragraph that I was finding hard. I was finding, I was experiencing unpleasant emotions, even if just minor ones, from the sort of having to put the effort in to think through what I was trying to say and say it as clearly as possible. And this was causing me a little bit of anxiety or or, um, or even, you know, fear of a very mild kind. And it occurred to me or to my lizard brain that it would be more pleasant to uh, spend five minutes scrolling through Twitter, um, uh, which unfortunately then because of how Twitter works might become uh, an hour scrolling through Twitter. But, you know, there's this, there's this, I think it's very useful to be aware of this inner discomfort that we feel almost specifically when we are doing things that really matter, you know, things that, things that are big enough 
uh, to trigger a little bit of resistance, a little bit of anxiety, uh, and how uh, and how digital distractions are sort of waiting there for us uh, uh, to sort of numb out a bit and give us relief from that. And I'm not even saying that you know after a couple of hours of hard work, it's not perfectly legitimate way to. Uh, give yourself a break, but but um, I think it's really useful to be aware that sort of distraction is an inside job as well as a, as an external one. Absolutely, I mean, there's again to go back to the productivity and time management field, right? There's a whole lot of people who spend a whole lot of time writing about just turn off your distractions and your notifications, which is important if you haven't done that, right? Like it's a great place to start, but far beyond that, for most of us, is like you said, we we wander into the distraction, um, maybe not as consciously as we might think, right? I realize I, you know, it's almost it, at this point, there's an almost unconscious grabbing my phone and having it in front of me before I've even really contemplated what I'm doing at all. But you, you're right, that urge for distraction comes from within. And I think one of the things that's so pernicious for me, and I think probably a lot of people, but I'll just speak for myself, is that a couple things. One is that that urge, so there's this desire to distract or have a short break or to, to turn away. And so technology makes it so easy to do so that I can almost do it over and over and over again. And then the and then I find that the very path of distracting myself in that way just makes me more likely to need to distract myself. It feeds on itself, whereas a break that has some sort of more edification for me, like going out and spending five minutes walking around outside doesn't cause me to need five more minutes of walking around outside in the same way that five minutes of Twitter causes me to need five more minutes of Twitter. There's something I've noticed about myself when I am sort of checking the phone a lot, even if it's just email, that there's something that drains me about that. And if I have a day where I sort of, that tendency runs wild, I feel scattered and distracted in a way that makes me just need to scatter and distract myself even more. Yes, I think that's totally right. And I think then also the, the technology is is conspiring with that by finding ways to keep you sucked in. I think what that really points to is a kind of a tricky thing to get one's head around, which is that when it's uh, that when you take a break, it's sort of deeply wired into us to assume that if you've been working hard on some piece of writing or something, I mean, I always use examples from what I do, but apply in different ways to other people's work. When you take a break, you sort of expect it to feel immediately joyous that you're taking a break. It's like a totally wonderful experience. And, and actually, for a few seconds, social media often does feel that way until the, until the rot sets in about you know, 20 seconds later and you start hating yourself for doing it. But a break that's actually very restorative, getting up from your desk, stretching, going outside it actually might not feel that good right at first because, you know, the flywheel of your mind has been spinning, 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 and you're kind of having to sort of interrupt that. You're breaking momentum deliberately. And I think it's worth, you know, it's very helpful to remember that uh, a really restorative break that feels great after, you know, when you return to your desk in the first few seconds might actually feel uh, boring or almost worse than boring because it's not because it's kind of interrupting everything that has uh, been been going in your mind if that makes sense it does I think that's a that's a great point and somehow we have come without me even noticing it to the end of our time <laughs> so you and I are going to talk a little bit more in a post-show conversation and one of the things we're going to talk about is a 
question you posed, which is why are we surprised that therapy has its downsides? So I am really looking forward to you and I talking about that. Listeners, if you're interested, you can get access to that as well as a weekly mini episode I do called A Teaching, A Song, and a Poem by going to oneyoufeed.net slash support and contributing. So Oliver, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. It's been fun to talk and kind of like the first time, I feel like I could, you know, this could go on for a long time, but yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneyoufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.